Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5 is Paul's introduction. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now Lord, own Your Word. Awaken our minds, our hearts, our imaginations, our affections not only see the truth, but to love the truth, and because we love the truth, to have our lives shaped by the truth of Your Gospel. Let it penetrate and permeate all that we are as a church and as individuals. Awaken us. Lord, awaken the sleepy. Shake off the dullness and weariness of the weary and tired. And Lord, grab the attention of the, uh, of the resistant to hear and to be transformed by the truth of Your Gospel Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Galatians is about freedom. Gospel freedom. The kind of freedom you and I desperately need. Somebody said, why Galatians? And I answered, because we need its message every bit as much today as the Galatians did in Paul's day. Galatians matters because the Gospel matters. And it is the Gospel that we are in danger of letting go of every single day. I don't know if you know this about yourself, but you and I, by default, tend to look within ourselves for solutions. It's in the air that we breathe in this culture. Look to yourself. Follow your heart. Find your truth and live it. And yet that mindset, so popular today, is deadly spiritually. It is toxic to any real fellowship with Christ and ultimately will steal away uh, any real hope for life and joy and salvation and true freedom in your life. And so we need the book of Galatians because we need this freedom alive in us. And so let's let's begin there this morning with the source and the sharing of this freedom. Notice that's where Paul begins his letter in verses 1 and 2. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And so what we call the book of Galatians, many of you know, is actually a letter written by Paul to a group of churches in the region of Galatia. So Galatia is not a city, it is a region, you know, a a Roman region. Now, normally when you wrote a letter in those days, you would start by identifying yourself and then indicate to whom you are writing. And we can see that Paul does that here. Paul an apostle to the churches of Galatia. That's normal. What isn't normal is the way Paul immediately then begins to defend his position as an apostle. Uh, Notice that. 
Uh, notice the hyphen or parenthesis depending on your translation. Paul, an apostle, but wait, I've got to say something else, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. What's going on there? Well, what's going on there is that Paul is writing to people who've begun to question his position and authority as an apostle. So what is an apostle? An apostle is an official representative sent by a king or some other person in authority. Today we might say an emissary or an ambassador. And the point is, when that emissary was appointed by the king, they were then empowered to speak for the king with the king's authority. The word of the emissary carries the very same authority as that of the king who sent him to represent him. And so Paul, we see throughout the New Testament, was appointed by God to be his apostle, to be his emissary specifically to the Gentiles like those who live in the region of Galatia. He was appointed to that task. Or was he? You see, that's partly what is being questioned by Paul's opponents as he writes this letter. Uh, so, so a little background might help us here. If you were to go back to Acts 13, and I, I would suggest maybe later you would do that, back in Acts 13, Paul, now at that time he was using his Jewish name, Saul, but Paul was set apart by the Holy Spirit and sent out with his good friend Barnabas uh, by the church of Antioch on a mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish people. Uh, we can read about that in Acts 13, 2 and 3. It says, While the church was worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, again that's Paul, for the work to which I have called them, that after fasting and praying they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. This is the beginning of what we call Paul's first missionary journey. Look at the back of your Bible. There's probably a map, and there's also one in the bulletin showing that first missionary journey. Well, the, the heart of that journey took them through the region of South Galatia, through cities uh, like Iconium, Lystra, Derba. Uh, you can read about that in Acts 14, where Paul preached the gospel. And Gentiles who heard that message believed and came to Christ... Uh, and, and churches were formed. And Paul and Barnabas began to teach them the gospel and the truth upon which they must live, but very quickly persecution broke out and forced them to leave. Paul was almost stoned to death, for instance, in Lystra. So you have these groups of churches filled with new believers, not yet stable and secure in their faith, and that's when it happened. False teachers came in to that same region preaching a different gospel. Later in Acts, Paul will even talk about the different gospel, which really isn't a gospel at all, but you believe this lie. Uh, you can read about that process, Acts 15, verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, there in that region, uh, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, they said, the gospel that Paul preached to you is not enough. It is not enough just to believe in what Christ has done. You must do more. You must do something else. You, you must add to the gospel your own obedience to the law, you know, circumcision and all that goes with it. And unless you do that, you cannot be saved. That's what they were saying. Uh, Christ alone is not enough. To which these new believers surely protested. 
but Paul said, it's faith in Christ alone. And these opponents would have responded, who's Paul? Why are you listening to him? He's not a real apostle. He wasn't there from the beginning. He, he didn't come from Judea like we did. He's a, he's a Johnny come lately. You know, he, he got his message secondhand from others. He doesn't know the truth like we do. He's just a second rate preacher. That's the challenge Paul is responding to as he begins his letter in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Notice three things here that Paul says in this introduction to counter their lie and to assert His God-given authority and calling as an apostle, one sent to represent God and to speak His message. First, he tells them that his position as an apostle does not rest on any human authority. Uh, not from men, you know, generally, nor through man, none, no individual out there, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Not from men, but from whom? From, from God, right? From Christ. And so Paul's not just uh, some preacher who came up with a message so he could get a following. There's enough of those guys out there already nor did he derive this message through any human source. He makes that clear, verse 11 and 12. For I, I, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So his authority doesn't derive from any man, any group, any coalition. It derives from where? From God Himself. That's the second thing. So His authority as an apostle, He assures them, comes directly from God. Hear it again. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Not from men, but from God. And notice, by the way, how in this statement He puts God the Father and Christ the Son on exactly the same plane. We'll come back to this in a little bit, but, it, but it's very important. In Paul's theology, God the Father and Christ the Son occupy the same space ontologically. That is, as to who they are. That they are equally God. And then notice how he also emphasizes what it is the Father has done with Christ. The Father who raised Christ from the dead. Now, why focus on that in this little introduction? I mean, he could have said something else. He could have said, the Father who created the universe. The Father who made the stars. But he says, the Father who raised Him, that is Jesus, from the dead. Why focus on that? Because that is the very heart and soul of the Gospel. That is the fact, the reality that changes everything. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul will say, For I declared to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Of first importance. Why? Because the truth of the Gospel 
stands and falls on this. If Christ has been raised, the gospel is true. If not, it's a lie and you shouldn't believe it. Paul says that plainly, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. That is, it's empty, it's foolish, and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. So the, the gospel stands or falls here. Not, notice, not on something you did or can do, but on what God did in raising Christ from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15.20 But in fact, God has raised Christ from the dead. Another reason I think Paul emphasizes this here is because, well, do you remember how Paul first met Christ and received his commission as an apostle? It was on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Paul had been a fierce opponent of the Christian faith, a, 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 a Pharisee who was out to destroy and kill and imprison as many Christians as he could. He was on his way to Damascus to do that very thing. And he had this terrifying encounter with this, this amazing divine being who was none other than the risen Christ Himself. Blinded by the encounter, struck to the ground in awe, he is then led by the hand into the city of Damascus where he is freed by grace. His sight is restored. And he learns that he is indeed Christ's chosen instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles. You see, it was very important for anyone who would indeed be an apostle that they had seen Jesus face to face. Which, by the way, means you can write off all those guys today who claim to be apostles. Right? Just write them off. They're lying. Paul was not lying. Because his opponents are going to claim, well, you're not an apostle. You didn't see Jesus face to face. You weren't there on the Sea of Galilee. Well, no doubt, Paul has shared this story with the Galatians many times already. And so here he is simply reminding them of the fact once more, I saw the risen Christ. I received my commission directly from Him, and so the word that I'm speaking carries His full weight and authority. By the way, that is something that you and I need to keep in mind as well as we open this book. There, there, there is no shortage of people out there today who want to downplay Paul and his teaching as in some way substandard to Jesus, right? The red letters pay attention to them, but Paul, you know, take him with a grain of salt. That, that's just Paul, especially when it comes to controversial issues of sexuality and morality and some of these things that we'd like to find a way to wiggle around. Don't you fall for that for a minute. Listen, those people are liars just as they were in Paul's day. And their gospel is a false gospel. It will not save. And so Paul was appointed by Christ to speak with Christ's full authority so that this word we read here and elsewhere in the New Testament carries that authority in such a way that we can say, as, as, as Grudem always liked to say, to, to disbelieve or disobey the words of the apostle is to disbelieve and disobey God Himself. It, this word carries that full authority of God. And then Paul also reminds them that Paul himself does not stand out in left field by himself as some kind of interloper, some kind of you know weird dude out there in a the corner somewhere. Verse 2, notice he says, and all the brothers who are with me. Well, that's significant. Right? Paul's not flying solo. He's not some you know weird guy with a tinfoil hat out in a field somewhere making this stuff up. 
He is in a coalition and a band of brothers who have been impacted by this same gospel. Uh, read the book of Acts. You can learn their names. And so the call to follow Christ is a call to share in the fellowship of others who are also following Christ. In other words, understand this, we don't get to do this on our own. We can't do this on our own. We aren't built to do this on our own. Paul was not built to do this on his own. Faith in Christ creates fellowship among the faithful. We call that the church. And that is a necessary part of our faith. That's not an optional part. You don't get to say, I don't want that. It's a necessary part of our faith. So, so Paul understood and emphasized the gospel makes us family. Notice he calls them brothers, siblings. And, and that's a term that would include our sisters in the faith as well. Uh, we are family. We are, we are one family in union with Christ who has made us sons and daughters of the one Father. And that's part of our freedom also. The gospel sets us free from isolation and brings us into the fellowship of the faithful. Right? So that's the source and the sharing of our freedom. Second, notice the grace and the power of this freedom. Verse 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins and delivered us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Grace and peace. And many of you know that that is Paul's standard greeting in almost all of his letters. But don't run past that too quickly. For as Luther said, grace and peace encompass all that belongs to Christianity. It is by grace we are saved. It is through grace that our sins are forgiven and our guilt is swept away so that we now have real peace with God. Uh, Romans 5 verse 1 uh, is one of my favorites. Ought to be one of yours. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what happens here. Grace secures us in faith. Peace assures us of faith. Grace, God's unmerited favor, God's undeserved kindness poured out upon us sinners to secure our salvation. Grace secures us. Grace enlivens. Grace gives faith. Grace enables us to repent and believe. And then peace assures us that it's real. It comforts our hearts and whispers His love in our ear so that we know we belong to Him, not by our works, but by faith in His mercy alone. Jesus says in John 14.27, Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. It's not just an absence of conflict. It's the reality let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Grace secures us in His love. Peace assures us of His love. And you put these two together, and this is where the gospel-believing Christian lives. And listen, we ought to live here consciously. The Christian life has a new orientation, a new center point to it. Not I, but Christ. And, and, and Christian, you ought to wake up every morning and remind yourself of that. 
Remind yourself. That's why I go to the Word every morning in prayer. Because I need reminded. Remind yourself that, that you live in this space carved out for you by Christ through the Gospel where grace has saved you so that now His peace can take hold of you and can orient your life to Him. Not by your works not by your accomplishments, not through your efforts to be a better person, but by His grace as a gift. Not according to your feelings and how you're doing today, not the whimsy of emotion, but a peace He has established for you with God through His cross. Listen, that's what the Gospel brings to those who believe and rest in Him by faith. And notice... Notice, none of this here is hanging in midair. These aren't just feelings or the wishful thinking of religion that we're just hoping maybe somehow is true. This grace and peace are anchored to something real. Do you see that? There in verses 3 and 4. Read it again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins. Grace and peace are real things that come into our lives because of what Christ has done for us objectively and in reality here on this planet 2,000 years ago. In other words, there is an objective reality to our salvation. It hangs on the real actions of God for us in Christ. Boy, if you understand that, that changes everything. And notice again here this this joining together of God the Father and Christ Jesus as Lord. Look at verse four again. And I really do wish I wish it was possible just to pull a whiteboard, Jason's whiteboard up here, and um, give you a little Greek lesson, uh, and just show you this grammatically because there's just something really beautiful here. But the way Paul phrases this, it would almost be blasphemous if Christ is not on an equal par with God. It would be blasphemous. Because He sets these two, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, together under the same preposition, which may not mean anything to you, but it's, it, it, it's saying these are one ontologically. In being, these are one. Um, these are one in such a way that it just shouts their equality and points to Christ's deity. Right? And notice, in case we miss that, because you know, we, we fell asleep in grammar school, um, he calls Jesus Lord here. The Lord Jesus Christ. Kyrios. Uh, that same word used so very often in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, to translate God's covenant name, Yahweh. Again, this is no accident. This is what he is saying. Grace and peace come to us because God the Father and Christ the Lord, one God, along with the Holy Spirit, who will come up into Galatians later, they have taken action for us, this action of the cross for us. What action? Well, look, verse 4 and 5, he goes there. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to God the Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, listen, we really ought to take our shoes off here. Because we're on holy ground, whether you realize it or not. Again, this is the very heart of the Gospel. It's as if every single word of verse 4 is crammed full of the grace of the Gospel. Paul is about to point us to throughout this whole book of Galatians to make sure that we see it. 
to make it clear to us that this salvation we've been given in no way depends upon us, but is fully and completely dependent upon Christ and what He has done. I mean, notice that. Notice first, at the very heart of this gospel, Christ gave Himself for our sins. Oh, be amazed at this. Friend, this is your hope. This is your confidence in salvation. You don't find it by looking in a mirror. You find it by looking to Christ. It's not based on what you have done for Him. It is what He has done for us. And what has He done? He gave Himself for our sins. These words refer to that self-giving of Christ on the cross in our behalf. How He became our substitute. How He took our place under the wrath of God to bear our sin away from us and pay its full penalty. I mean, there is glory here for those who can see it. And and, and Paul gets swept up in that glory. Later on, he rejoices in it in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. For me! That that preposition for in Greek is is huper. And it means on behalf of, it means in the place of. The same preposition used here in Galatians 1.4 when it says Christ gave Himself for our sins, huper, our sins, that is, He put Himself in the place of us sinners who deserved God's wrath and took it upon Himself in our place so we would not have to. Friend, this is the heart of the Gospel. This is the soul of assurance to know that Christ has done this and to know that He has done it for me. As Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 says, and Paul surely had this passage in mind as he wrote these words. Isaiah 53 says, But He, that is Christ the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Can you see this? Can you see the glory of it? Friend, listen, this is where peace and assurance become yours as a Christian. Nowhere else. To know that Christ was given for my sins. Martin Luther in his comments on Galatians says that these are words that we must learn to take to heart and to take very personally. That we must resist the tendency to merely take them in a general way as if to say, Christ died for some sins out there. No, by faith we must own this ourselves. Christ died for my sins. Christ substituted Himself for my iniquities to free me from my slavery. I ran across something this week in a book someone had given me on Martin Luther, and it really has been a balm to my soul. Let it be yours. I don't usually read long passages. In fact, I want to read you about ten pages, but they told me I couldn't do that. So this will be a little longer reading, but you hang with me because this is Martin Luther. I told somebody, I brought some Luther with me today. Somebody's going to get hurt. Um, Hopefully the devil. Listen to what he says. 
says, don't give in to the hopelessness that comes when you're overwhelmed by your sin. Rather learn here from Paul to believe that Christ was given not for made-up sins or for watercolor sins or petty little sins, but for immense and enormous sins. Not for one or two of them, but for all of them. Not for sins that you yourself have overcome, but for sins you cannot overcome. For unless you count yourself among those who can say our sins, meaning those who hold to this faith and teach it and learn it and love it and believe it, there can be no salvation for you. Therefore make a diligent effort so that not only when you are away from temptation, but especially when you're being tempted and in the struggle of death, that you will also have this faith And also, when your conscience is smitten, remembering your past sins, when the devil blasts against you with great violence, when he tries to drown you with surging swells, floods, and entire seas of your sins, to drown you in fear and to pull you away from Christ and to sink you down in despair, that is when you can declare with all confidence, Christ the Son of God was given for me. Not for the righteous and holy, but for the unrighteous and sinful. If I were righteous and had no sin, I would not, it would not be necessary for Christ to be my reconciler. Why then, Satan, you faker of holiness, do you try to get me to look for holiness within myself? When in reality I found nothing in there but the most disgusting of sins. Let these words be taken as effective, true, and of great importance that Christ gave Himself. Not for those who are already saints, not for the righteous, not for the seemingly worthy, but rather He has given Himself for perverse sinners, for the unworthy, and for His enemies who are worthy of nothing but God's wrath and eternal death. Therefore, armed with these and similar statements of the Holy Scriptures, we can respond to the devil when he accuses us. You are a sinner. That is why you are condemned. Let us respond with, yes, I'm a sinner. That is why I'm justified and saved. No, says the devil, you will be lost. No, I respond, because I take refuge in Christ who gave Himself for my sins. He goes on, learn this definition well. In particular, make use of this pronoun, ours. Have full confidence that these syllables devour all your sins. You may know with all confidence that Christ has taken away not just the sins of certain people, but also yours. You can believe that Christ has given not just the sins, uh, given not just for the sins of others, but also for yours. Take hold of this and do not let it go. Don't let yourself wander away from this sweetest definition of Christ in which the very angels of heaven rejoice. And then he says, I beg you with all my heart, learn this truth. Christ gave Himself for our sins. That's... I've got to love me some Luther, right? That's the gospel thunder Paul wants us to take to heart. Christ gave Himself for our sins. But notice also here it says, Christ gave Himself for a purpose to deliver us from this present evil... Sorry. From this present evil age. Verse 4 again. Who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. This is the purpose of Christ's self-giving. 
to deliver us, to rescue us, it means to free us from our slavery to this present evil age. That's the message Paul indeed had originally come preaching in Galatia. Uh, Galatians 3, I'm sorry, Acts 13.38, when Paul first came to Galatia, he says to them, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The gospel of Christ is a message of complete freedom and full forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ alone. And so, uh, the word Paul uses here for deliver is a word that's often used uh, of setting captives free, of, of breaking their shackles and sending them uh, into freedom. It's, it's a word that was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for, for God coming to Egypt and, and, and delivering and unenslaving His people. Acts 3 verse 8, God says, I've come down from heaven to deliver, same word in the, in the Greek version, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up into a good land that I had prepared for them. And so, just as God rescued Israel out of Egyptian bondage to know and walk with Him in freedom, so Christ has rescued us out of our present bondage to this present age uh, that we might know and walk in freedom with Him. I mean, just think what that means. It means God's saving purpose is bigger than just the forgiveness of sins. It certainly involves that, praise God. But it also brings you into a whole new life with Him. A life of freedom and grace where you are being empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk with Him and glorify and enjoy Him forever. That's what it means to be Delivered from this present evil age. You know this age is evil, right? You know it's lost, it's broken. Uh, This age is is, is an age of rebellion and sin under the direct dominion of Satan. I mean, you understand that, right? Uh, 1 John 5, verse 19, we know that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. But Christ has rescued us from that power. He has rescued us from the power to trample upon us and hold us and keep us in our sins. No, Paul says in Romans 6.14, sin shall not be your master any longer because you're no longer under law, but you are under grace. And so what Christ has done in His death and resurrection is that He has transferred you out from under the old dominion of, of, of Satan and this dying evil age that is perishing and falling away and He has brought you into the life and joy of His eternal kingdom. If you need a verse on that, Colossians 1.13 and 14 will knock your socks off. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So just make sure that you see what Paul is saying here. There's a contrast being made between that present evil age that is dying and fading away and the new life that has broken out in this world with the power to conquer death. And and so life has broken into this world. The day Christ rose from the dead, a new age began. Do you know that? Not the new age that fools and mystics talk about. Not that kind of thing. But the new age of resurrection life in Christ. 
that age began Easter morning when Christ rose from the dead. And you and I enter that age now through faith in Christ. That's what it means when we say that I have eternal life. How can you have eternal life that never ends? Because I've already stepped into that reality so that even when my body dies, I do not and cannot because Christ holds me and will continue to hold me and will raise me from physical death to enjoy the full fruit of this. We're already living in the taste of that now. We're tasting that life to come now in Christ. Oh no, not all of it yet. It's not here in its fullness yet. You can't see Christ's kingdom reigning on earth in some physical expression. But we are presently experiencing that life now among God's people by the Holy Spirit. And so you and I are living in this in-between time. The present evil age of sin and rebellion under Satan's dominion still stands. But... If you're in Christ, you are no longer a part of it. It no longer owns you. You have been transferred. You and I as believers are no longer held in its grip because the age of grace has dawned in Christ and the reality of that age has already taken hold of us when by faith we are brought to Christ and joined to Christ. Listen, this this is what salvation by grace does. It transfers your allegiance from the one kingdom to the other. From the old kingdom to the new. It frees you from your former bondage to this world so that you now live in a growing fellowship with your king and those who belong to the king. By the way, this is why you can no longer love this world or live for this world as you once did. 1 John 5, uh, 1 John 2, verse 15 to 17 is very clear. Go check it out. And so the Christian life is a reorientation so that more and more we live with that old life behind us as we're taking up the new life that Christ has already given us and beginning to live that. Not as a work to be performed to get on His good side, but as a gift of grace He has given where we are consciously choosing to walk with Him daily in that new reality, right? Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 ought to be one of your favorites. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. There's the grace. There's the gift. To present now your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, not as those who are trying to be saved, but as those who have been saved and rescued. Don't be conformed any longer to this present, by the way, same word, age but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing through the Scriptures you can discern the will of God which is, which, which is in, in this good word of His, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, so you can live out the reality of what Christ has already given you. Amen. And all this, third thing here, all this comes to us, notice, into verse 4, according to the will of God our Father. It comes to us, it comes to you, Because God the Father willed this for us. You understand, there's not a shadow of conflict between the will of God and our salvation and the work of Christ for our salvation. In fact, Christ did all the work that He has done in harmony with the Father who sent Him in love for the sake of those He came to save. John 3.16, God so loved this world of sinners, including you, uh, if you're in Christ, right? Including you. Uh, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. 
The Father in love sent the Son as a sacrifice to accomplish His will in our salvation. You need to take that personally. And the Son came willingly, joyfully, uh, that He might redeem us from our enslavement to this present age and take us home. Uh, John 6, verse 40, This is the will of My Father, Jesus said, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Friend, that is God's saving purpose. This is why Christ came. And this is a purpose that cannot fail. Because understand, Christ is not just an example for us to follow. He is an example, but He's not just an example. Christ didn't come to show us how we can save ourselves, because guess what? We can't. Christ came to do it Himself. And He has done it. And He has given Himself for us in our place to rescue us, that is to free us from this present evil age and to make us His own, not by our works or effort, but through His grace alone, gratefully received. Uh, which brings me to the last thing, which is really quick. You're glad. And that is the celebration and joy of this freedom. This point is very short because this is, what, this is your assignment. <laughs> Paul ends this introduction notice with a doxology. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? To Him be the glory. You see, if God in Christ does all the work of salvation, then God in Christ gets all the glory. That's the point of verse 5. It's not a shared glory because it's not a shared salvation, shared work of salvation. He who does the work gets the glory. Who did the work here? God. Who gets the glory? God in Christ. Well, well, then what's our part? To gratefully receive it by faith and rejoice. To, to celebrate what He has done. When? What to say? Forever and ever. Oh, by the way, this is cool and no time to look into it. Literally what that says is, to whom be the glory in the ages of the ages. He's making a direct contrast to this passing, dying, evil age. He, he just wants you to know this present evil age is temporary. It's falling apart. It's fading away. It cannot stand and it will not stand. But God's glory and salvation will stand forever and ever and ever. So that through this and every age, God will be glorified in those He saves as every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our goal. That's our future. That's our gift. That's where we live. Let's pray. Father, Paul gets us off to a running start here. Just in words of introduction, Reminding us once again that none of this came through man or by man. It's not just some religion of man. But it came through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. And that puts the exclamation point on it. It came to us who are now brothers and sisters in Christ. It came to us in grace that we receive through faith, putting us in a place of peace 
that God the Father and Christ the Lord have given because Christ gave Himself for our sins. God, that, that You would cause every person here to grasp that and to take hold of it. Those who are already believers to take hold of it in confidence. Those who are not yet believers to take hold of it in hope and to believe, to repent and believe to deliver us from this present evil age. There's no reason siding with this world because it's dying. It's done. It has no ultimate lasting power. But the will of our God stands forever. And His glory will be shouted forever. Oh God, let us begin to live in and shout that glory with great confidence through faith now we pray in Jesus. Amen.